But you can turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 31. We're coming to the end of Deuteronomy. Um, we probably won't start Joshua till the new year, uh, but we'll definitely get through Deuteronomy before Christmas time. Uh, so tonight we're going to look at 31 as we begin to move to uh, succession and future in the book of Deuteronomy. I'll read the entire chapter. We will go to verse 30. I know some um, editors put uh, verse 30 with verse 32. Uh, I think certainly 31 and 32 go together, uh, but we will look at verse 30 tonight. Uh, so uh, chapter, uh, chapter 31, verses 1 through 30. Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also, the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross, cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crossed over before you, just as the Lord had said. The Lord will do to them as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, in their land, when he destroyed them. The Lord will give them over to you, that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage. For you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Be not, do not fear nor be dismayed. So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in this year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting that I may inaugurate him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they go to be among them. They will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them. I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured. Many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done, and that they have turned to other gods. Now therefore write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that the song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. When I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten, filled themselves, and grown fat, then they will turn to other gods and serve them. They will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify against them as witness. 
but will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants, for I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I brought them to the land which I swore to give them. Therefore Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. Then he inaugurated Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. So it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, then Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I'm yet alive with you, you've been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that they may speak these words in their hearing, and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel, the words of this song until they were ended. Amen. Well, as we've highlighted and gone through this book, most of it already, uh, we know that it's the second generation of the people of Israel before they enter into the promised land. Uh, remember, the first generation was fearful of the giants in the land, except for Joshua and Caleb. Uh, and because of that, that first generation, because they were fearful, had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And so the second generation is about to enter in. And remember, uh, it's Deuteronomy is very much structured like a covenant. It really is the fullness of the Mosaic covenant. Uh, what Israel must do as a body politic in order to retain and have a good life in the land. Remember, it was all it was a it is a covenant of works. They must keep the commandments God has laid down in order to enjoy the blessings in that land. It was temporal life in the land, a covenant of works for them. Eternal life is never held out in the covenant of works. Uh, the last several weeks, we've been looking at sanctions, which are the blessings and the curses in chapters 27 through 30. Uh, that if Israel does not do what is right in the sight of the Lord, then they will see, receive the curse. If they do what is right, they'll receive the blessing. When we come towards the end of the book here in chapters 31 through 34, dealing with succession and future. And in chapters 1 through 3, they looked at the past. And here in chapters 31 through 34, they look ahead. Moses is going to die. The mediator of the old covenant is going to pass away. Joshua will lead them into the land. But usually sometimes uh, perhaps there's concerns that when there's, uh, when there's a transition of leadership, that the people shall stumble. And so Moses, as he transitions, as he knows he's going to die, as God transitions to Joshua, he makes sure the people understand that there is going to be a witness against them, that they must do what God has said. And Moses, even here, will set up some witnesses for them. Uh, against them that they violate and do not do what Yahweh has said. Because the problem I think we see in these verses, in this chapter, is the problem of a forgetful people. Yahweh in his work toward Israel has redeemed, provided for, fought for, and will bring them into the promised land. It wasn't because they were mighty, wasn't because they were, they were great, because he was good. And so the problem will be when Israel gets into the land, they enjoy a land flowing with milk and honey, and they grow fat in that land. They're going to forget all of God's goodness. They're going to forget his presence. They're going to forget his redemption, and they're going to forget his law. 
and it will be the same with subsequent leaders that come. It happened under Moses. We shouldn't be surprised if it happens other, under subsequent leaders as well. The people remain the same throughout their generations. They are stiff-necked, forgetful people. But there is some encouragement in Deuteronomy 31. There is a God who, does, who remains the same as well. And he is the God who remains with his people until the end. A God who is with and near to his chosen race. And so in Deuteronomy 31, Moses affirms that it is the same God who fights for them. But they are also the same stiff-necked people. So God remains the same even though there's a new leader. But the people shall remain the same even though there is a new leader as well. And those are my two points. New leader, same God, verses 1 through 13. And secondly, new leader, same people, verses 14 through 30. So new leader, same God, verses 1 through 13. And then new leader, same people, verses 14 through 30. So let's first look at new leader, same God, verses 1 through 13. And notice in verses 1 through 8, we see a God who never forsakes. And that Moses tries to highlight this, especially in verses 1 through 6, as he transitions to Joshua. And so he said, Moses uh, highlights here that he is going to pass, verse 1. Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. Uh, we move to that succession ceremony. It's going to be at the tent of meeting, but more on that in just a minute. And really the presence of Yahweh runs through this chapter especially with that tent of meeting. And so the people of Israel must be reminded, especially Joshua, must be reminded that God is going to be with them when they enter into that land. When they go and fight those big giants in the land, God is going to be with them. But Moses is not going to enter in. Moses is going to die today, or I guess at the time of his writing. He knows he's going to pass. He's going to go look on Mount Nebo. He's not going to enter in. He's going to the height of Pisgah. He's going to look, but he's not going to enter in. He's going to die this day. Moses, the mediator of the Lord, is going to pass. And so we see he speaks to Israel in verse 1. And he says to them, I'm 100, uh, verse 2, I'm 120 years old today. He's an old guy. He's been doing this for a long time. And really, you can uh, break up Moses' years uh, 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 three, uh, in three different uh, um, uh, uh, times of his life. Uh, he, from age 1 to 40, he was in Egypt. From age 40 to 80, he was in Midian. And from age 80 to 120, he was the mediator for the people of Israel. Remember that. He started at age 80. He came to, uh, he came, uh, to when, he, uh, when we get to the plagues and, and uh, the let my people go, he's 80 years old. He's 120 now. I mean, you know, age is just a number, people say, but I don't know that I'll be alive by 120. I'll probably die before then. I don't know what I'll be doing when I'm 80. Probably not, you know, starting to lead the people of Israel. So he has done a lot. He has gotten old and he can, he can no longer, certainly age is a factor. He can no longer in his old age be the mediator. I can no longer go in and come in. And in Numbers 27, where we see some more of that or initially see that succession plan, he says uh, Joshua needs to be one who goes in and comes out. And that language is shepherd-like language. The shepherd who goes in and comes out, the shepherd who leads his people. Well, Moses can no longer do that. Joshua is going to be the one who's going to lead them into that promised land. So there's the problem of his age. He's going to die. 
There is also the problem of his sin. Remember in, remember in Numbers chapter 20, rather than speaking to the rock, he smacks it. And so Moses himself is going to die and not enter in. Remember, he's part of that first generation too, although that first generation was wicked and terrible and awful. But Moses is going to die uh, like they did by not entering into that promised land. So there is both the, the age aspect and the sin aspect, although the sin aspect isn't really drawn out so much except uh, there in verse 2. And also the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over the Jordan. Well, the reason is he smacked the rock rather than speaking to it. So age, sin, he's going to die. He's not going to enter in. There's going to be a new leader. And the reminder for the people of Israel is really who actually is their leader. Even though Moses is going to pass, Yahweh will always remain their God and their shepherd. And so in verse 3, the Lord your God himself, he is the one who crosses before you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess them. So God is the one who fights. God is the one who leads. God really is that good shepherd who leads his people. And remember, too, when it came to shepherding imagery, typically the shepherd would be the one who leads the way and the sheep would follow. Yahweh is the one who leads his people. And he's going to lead his people into that promised land. It's meant to be a comfort for them. It's meant to be an encouragement for them. The giants are still in the land. Those big, burly buff boys are still there. And so he must, uh, so they still need God's strength. They still need God's nearness and they need to trust in God's promise. So Moses encourages them. Here, God will go before you. I'm going to pass, but God is going to be with you. He shall destroy these nations, and you shall dispossess them. Notice that. God is the one who does it, but God does it by way of secondary causes. God doesn't just, you know, drop the hammer, so to speak. He's going to use the nation of Israel. He's going to use swords. He's going to use marching around Jericho and screaming and then running in and killing all the Jerichoites. He's going to use the people for his purposes, A, to bring judgment on them, but uh, the judgment on Canaan, but also to bring the people of God into the promised land, which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that's very clear there. He will destroy the nation from before you, and you shall dispossess them. So it's the same God who leads you. And he's going to be the same God with the new leader. Joshua himself crosses before you. God's leader, but God raised up under shepherds. So he raised up Joshua to be that leader to succeed Moses. And he is a very good leader. We'll see lots of Joshua in Joshua. So Joshua himself crossed over before you, just as the Lord had said, which is in Numbers 27. Then God also reminds them, or uh, Moses also reminds them that God was with them in other battles as well. In verse 4, the Lord will do to them as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites and their land, when he destroyed them. This was recounted also in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. That is, the people already had a reminder, already had an experience that God will fight with them. God was with them when they fought Og. God was with them when they fought Sion. And God will be with them when they enter into that land, when he destroyed them. And the Lord, verse 5, will give them over to you, that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. So the purpose that they may honor God, 
God will give them, uh, uh, give uh, Sion and Og, uh, just as he gave Sion over to them, so too will he give the Canaanites over to them, that they might do everything according to God has said in this book. So it's the same God who fought for them. And notice it's the same God who's going to be near to them. Verse 6, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. But the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. This is the encouraging part of Moses' last words. There's going to be an ominous part to Moses' last words, but this is the encouraging part. God will be with you. Do not be afraid. Don't be fearful of them. What's the implication of that? They might be afraid that there's going to be uh, war. There's going to be you know, times where they're going to be perhaps fearful. But Yahweh is saying, and Moses is saying, don't be. Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, for God is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, this is also affirmed to Joshua. This comes up again in the book of Joshua, but this is affirmed in verses 7 and 8. It's going to be the same God who's with Joshua. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him, in the sight of all Israel, Again, this is an inauguration and affirmation. Joshua himself must be strong and of good courage. God, Joshua needs to be the one who leads. Joshua needs to be the one who, who guides them into that land. If a leader is fearful, if the leader does not have courage, the rest of the people are not going to want to go into battle. If the strongest guy is fearful, then the rest of the weak guy, what's the weak guy going to do if the strongest guy is fearful. And so Joshua, as the leader, as he engages in that conquest on behalf of the Lord, must be strong and of good courage. For you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to the fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And again, the reason they need to be strong and of good courage is, again, that first generation was not. And Joshua and Caleb, again, were the only ones who were uh, who, who feared the Lord rather than the giant Anakim. They said, God said, this land is ours. God said, this has been sworn to us. God said, but the, the first generation did not listen. And so if God is with them. They ought to lay hold of that. And certainly Joshua and Caleb do uh, under that first generation. And certainly they will do this with the second generation as they enter in. So they shall go, they shall inherit it, they shall take that land, and again, the assurance for Joshua, and the Lord, he is the one who goes before you, he will be with you, he will not leave you, nor forsake you, do not fear, nor be dismayed. So it's the same God who will go with them, the same God who is with them, with the people, and with the leader of the people. But then notice in verses 9 through 13, it's the same law they must remember. Verse 9, the law is going to be entrusted to leaders, not just Joshua, but other leaders as well. Moses wrote this law, and he delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant. Now, again, presence is important in this book. The presence of Yahweh with his people. Because what's going to happen is when the people don't do what Yahweh says, they're not going to have Yahweh's favorable Present And certainly the Ark of the Covenant was a specific sign of Yahweh's presence with his people. It was also the place where the Decalogue was probably put in, the signature, so to speak. And we'll see 
that the book of Moses or the book of, uh, of Deuteronomy was placed beside that as a witness. Uh, but we're not there just yet. But in any case, the priests were meant to be the leaders in the religious life. But also there's elders who bore the Ark of the Covenant and to all the elders of Israel. There's ought to be uh, leaders in the civic life as well. There were leaders meant to, to, to be entrusted to pass on, to continue on, and to make sure the people, even though Moses had died, under, still understood that same law that Moses has given to them. And so he entrusts this law to them. He gives this uh, book to them. And notice, you need to read it. Verse 10. And Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all in their hearing. Now, this was not going to be covenant renewal. This is going to be more of a remembrance. Renewal was typically for special occasions. As they're about to enter into the land, after they do something sinister and terrible, like the golden calf, there's a covenant renewal there. Uh, but this would be what uh, a, a covenant reminder, a covenant remembrance. And it was every seven years at the year of release. Remember, that's in Deuteronomy 15. After seven years, all the debts would be canceled. And the reason, uh, the, uh, the reason for that was founded in God's redemption of Israel from Egypt, that releasing them, that uh, saving them, that bringing them up out of bondage. And it would also, during that seventh year, be at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, which also recounts Yahweh's provision for them in the wilderness. Yahweh's nearness with them in the wilderness. Got Yahweh's presence in redemption and Yahweh's presence in their life as well. And so this law was to be read every seven years. Now, it didn't mean they could just forget it the other six years. You know, certainly the, 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 the parents ought to have taught it to their children. But remember, they didn't have iPhones. They didn't have, you know, books, just, you know, personal Bibles with their initials in it. They had to, every uh, the way in which they heard God's word was at the gatherings, and they, had to, and, uh, uh, and they had to memorize it and to know it well, otherwise they would not have had God's word in that way. So it was important for them to come and to gather and to hear God's word in this way. And so especially here, he's institutionalizing the importance of the law for the people in their life. So read it every seven years. Verse 12, gather the people together, men and women and little ones and the stranger, that they may all hear, that they may learn to fear the Lord and to observe all the words of this law. We need reminders. We need people to tell us again and again and again certain things because we grow forgetful. We grow forgetful of God's promises. We grow forgetful of God's goodness. We grow forgetful of God's presence. And we need to be reminded of that. We go, grow forgetful also of what God asks of us as his people. And so we need those reminders daily, weekly, and every seven years for the people of Israel. So the generations who have gone every seven years, they'll hear it and they keep learning to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law. So the old boys, the veterans still need to hear but also the children. 
and verse 13 that they're children. There's going to be new generations. There's going to be little wee ones that come up. They need to hear it. They need to know. Certainly the parents ought to have been teaching it to them, but they need to hear it as well. That they may learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land. And if the people don't fear the Lord their God, they're not going to live in the land. And it required all of them. It required every individual to do their part. That was the purpose for the scare tactics in Deuteronomy 29. All the people, all the people, they, each one from the greatest to the least had to do their part. If not, well, they would face the brunt of the blood, the curses in Deuteronomy 28. All the people would, but especially the one who causes everybody to sin. Don't be that guy is the point of Deuteronomy 29. And so the people, the children, must learn to fear the Lord their God and to live according to his ways in the land which God is giving them to possess, which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, there is a New Testament quote, uh, uh, New Testament, yeah, quote to Deuteronomy, but also certainly Joshua is in play there as well. And that's in Hebrews 13. I think this is a good comfort for the people of God and a good application for the new covenant people. Giants are scary. I've never seen a giant before, but giants are scary. I would suspect never been in a, a war before. I'm sure that's a scary thing to, you know, do, I played hockey and did Taekwondo. So I've been in fights that way, but uh, wasn't that scary, but some of it was, there were big people, but for the most part, you know, there, uh, we haven't, I haven't endured those types of things that we would see in Deuteronomy, fearing giants that way. But there's a lot of hardships and fears in life. And I think Hebrews 13 highlights this for us. There can be brotherly hatred, strife with families. There can be the threat of imprisonment and the threat of persecution. There's the sadness of broken marriages. And there's lacking certain things. We can be discontent with the life God has given us. And all those things are in view here in uh, Hebrews 13, when we come to that application section of the book. And remember the old, the, in Hebrews, the people there were wanting to go back to the old covenant. And the writer is saying, why would you go back to the old covenant? Why would you go back to a covenant that is breakable when you have the new? And so a comforting thing for us, for the new covenant people, is the promise of God's nearness, that that God's covenant can never be broken, that new covenant can never be broken. And one of the comforts, especially for the new, because of the terms of the new, is that God has said he will never leave us. And we see that here. Verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That goes back to Deuteronomy 31. That goes back to Joshua 1. In Deuteronomy 31, it's repeated three times. Be strong and of good courage. You know, do not, uh, be, uh, 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 I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or the, uh, something of that. It's all there. Three times in Deuteronomy 31. And here it is in the context of one's life. Though of one's situation, you might feel like you lack something in life. But what is he saying here? God himself 
is your treasure. God himself is your life. God himself has put you in a certain place and withdrawn certain things and maybe has given you certain things. Uh, but certainly in this case, he's highlighting those who are concerned with the withdrawal of certain things. God will never leave you nor forsake you. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for God is with you. And brethren, God is with you. God is near you, verse 6, which is Psalm 27. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God has promised to be with his people. And whether we feel that or not, brethren, it remains to be true. God is our good shepherd. Christ is our good shepherd. And he leads us. Even if he leads us to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Brethren, that is a promise for us. And that is a promise we must cling to day by day. And if you don't feel that promise, you come and pray that promise. And you pray this promise back to God. God, you have said you would never leave me nor forsake me. Now, please, God, never leave me nor forsake me. God is near to us in life. And he is the same God who is near to us in life. So that's new leader, same God. Let's then look secondly at new leader, same people, verses 14 through 30. Notice it's the same people who forget. Verses 14 through 23. Now, there is, again, that theme of presence throughout this, but it's going to be presence and an affirmation for Joshua, but also the reality that the people are going to break the covenant. But notice in verse 14, the Lord now speaks to Moses. What's interesting is to see Moses speak to the people, Moses speak to the elders, and then verse 14, I think, is the center, or McConville says it's the center of the chiasm, bookending of the, of the, the Hebrew uh, text here. But the center really is what Yahweh says, which is verses 14 through 23. Then verse 24, Yahweh or Moses then again speaks to the leaders. And then verse 30, he speaks to the people. There's that chiasm kind of going on here. So verses 14 through 23 uh, kind of is the meat of this section of this chapter. And so the Lord says to Moses, behold, the days approach when you must die. All Joshua, present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting that I may inaugurate him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. But the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. Now, what, uh, what Yahweh says to Moses and about Joshua and the people uh, uh, is uh, 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 what am I saying? Sometimes I lose my train of thought. I don't know what I'm saying. That's unfortunate as I grow older. So I'm probably going to retire at 40 because I'm going to lose my mind, but that's okay. Uh, but basically what's going on here is the tent of meeting highlights the presence of Yahweh with his people and specifically the presence presence with Joshua. It's a sign of Yahweh's nearness, a sign of Yahweh's closeness, a sign of Yahweh's presence especially for Joshua himself. Joshua kind of needed that. He needed that affirmation. He heard God is with him, but now here's a sign God is with him. And remember, the tent of meeting has not been mentioned yet in Deuteronomy. It's in Numbers 33, or sorry, Exodus 33 and Numbers chapter 1. It was the place where Yahweh specifically met with 
Moses. And the pillar of cloud was a sign of Yahweh's presence. And so God says to Joshua, God says to him uh, through Moses, you're, the ne you're next in line. And so I'm affirming him, I'm inaugurating him, that all the people may see, that all of Israel may see. And so that is exactly what happens. The, uh, the cloud comes upon the tabernacle or on the tent of meeting uh, and affirms the sign to uh, Joshua. And it's also for the people as well. It's for them to see that Joshua has been chosen by God. Follow him. Listen to him. But there's also the problem of the people as well. Now, this is going to be a, there's going to be a sign against them. So this is a sign for Joshua and a sign for the people about Joshua's leadership. But also there's going to be a sign against the people about their violations of the covenant. And so the Lord says to Moses, yeah, verse 16, concerning the people, behold, you're going to die. You will rest with your fathers and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land where they go to be among them. And they will forsake and break my covenant, which I have made with them. The people will be the ones who forsake it. And the image of harlotry is used often throughout the Old Testament to describe Israel's apostasy. They're going to go after foreign gods. They're going to forget Yahweh. They're going to forget his goodness. They're going to be like, look, those pagans are doing that ritual and they're getting rain. Maybe we should do that. Those pagans are doing that ritual. They, they're getting grain. Maybe we should do that. Brethren, don't be surprised then, even in the modern era, when the church is allured by what the world does. That church has this band. That church has that pony. That church has that puppet. That church has this. That church has that. People get allured. We want, they want, uh, what does the world want? What does the world desire? What, what should, people are allured by that to have numbers, to have notoriety. They're going to be forgetful of the things of God, forgetful of what Yahweh has said, forgetful of the gospel itself. And so in the old, in the old covenant, Yahweh is predicting, Yahweh knows what the people are going to do. They're going to break it. They're going to violate this covenant. They're going to violate the old. They're going to go after the gods of the foreigners and play the harlot. Now, certainly Hosea is filled with harlotry type imagery. Certainly in Judges 8 as well, after Gideon dies, well, the people go and play the harlot with the Baals right after Gideon. Again, power vacuum or leadership leaders die, and what happens? They, they go off and play the harlot because there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So they're going to violate it, and they're going to violate the terms of this covenant. They have forsake, will forsake Yahweh, and Yahweh will then forsake them now that's hard for us to wrestle with after he's just said Yahweh will never leave you nor forsake you but the promise really uh, certainly is uh, looking ahead to that covenant which cannot be broken if people do what is right Yahweh will never leave you nor forsake you we can't do what is right so we need someone else to do what is right namely Christ and Christ is the evidence that God will never leave nor forsake his elect and his people we are always within his grasp. We'll never be snatched from his hands. We are always kept until the end. That is a comfort for the new covenant people. But under these old covenant terms, 
Yahweh would forsake them because they first forsook him. And we see that in verse 17. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them. I will hide my face, and they shall be devoured. A lot of this stuff is going to be repeated in that song in for chapter 32. We'll certainly get to that next week. We see what Yahweh is going to do. He's going to forsake righteously. He's going to do that. They're going to grow fat. They forsook him. We see that in 32, 15. They're going to be devoured. And we're going to see they're devoured in chapter 32, 24. The pestilence will devour them. Animals will devour them. They're going to be poisoned by serpents. The sword shall destroy them. They shall be terror within for the young man and the virgin, the nursing child with the man. Everyone's going to be frightened. Everyone's going to be fearful. Everyone's going to be devoured. That's the image that is there. Yahweh is going to bring this about. They've forsaken them. He's going to hide his favorable presence from them. Many evils shall come upon them in that day. And notice, they're going to be devoid of sense. They're going to be so aloof. They're going to be so blind that they didn't see it coming. Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? Oh, you just figured it out? You see, sometimes it's too late, isn't it? After they've been kicked out, after they realize, that seems to be what is in view here in verse 17. They're going to worship the Baals alongside Yahweh. They're going to worship the Ashtoreth alongside Yahweh. I think everything's fine. Everything's great. Everything must be good. Yahweh hasn't struck us down yet. People think that way, right? Yahweh hasn't struck us down. I'm doing wickedness. Everything must be good. They're going to think that way. And even after they go into exile, the people of Malachi's day think the same way as well. Well, nothing bad has happened, so it must be fine. And so they're going to think everything's good, and then all these things will come upon them. Oh, wait, we forgot. Oh, dear. Uh, have these evils not come upon us because God is not among us? Did they stop to ask why God is not among them? And Kyle and Dalich, I think, point out something very piercing. Missing God is not true repentance. Missing the benefits that God gives is not true repentance. I've heard this before. I miss being in church. But they don't, people, people can say that. I miss being in church, but they don't want to repent of their sins, right? And I think you see this in the book of Judges. A lot of people think it's sword. Sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance. It's not. It's sin, oppression, deliverance. People don't repent. You know what repentance is? Sorrow over sin. Not because you caught, got caught. Not because you so-called missed the benefits and the blessings of feeling good in church. But God himself is what we need. Repentance over our sins against him. Our sorrow over sins against what he has done. And the people just treat God like a mercenary. Oh, we want God, but we want something. And that seems to be, I think, in view in verse 17. You see this in the history of Israel. I can't wait to get the judges. That's not going to be for another year. Uh, but that'll be wonderful stuff. I know it sounds depressing now, but it'll be good when we get there. Um, and verse 18, I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done. When they have turned to other gods. And the witness against them will be this song in verse 32, uh, in chapter 32, but verse 19. Now, therefore, write down this song for yourselves. Moses and Joshua needed to know it. The leaders need to know it. 
Sometimes tunes help us remember things, right? But in this case, it's going to be a sign that they're going to grow fat and forget God. It's not going to be a nice tune. It's not going to be a happy tune. It's not going to be a good tune. And certainly uh, you see that um, uh, in, in Deuteronomy 32. But verse 19, teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. This is not a nice witness. When I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they've eaten and filled themselves and grown fat. They've grown large. They've grown forgetful. That's typically what happens when life is good, right? Things are great. I can chow down without a care in the world. And when someone grows fat, they grow lazy. I know our modern can't shame anybody, fat shame, uh, a modern con uh, modern society would not like this, but growing fat is not good, right? It's not good. We have to understand that. I get a little bit, nobody has to be Arnold Schwarzenegger, but, but morbidly obese is not something someone ought to be. It is not healthy. And usually it's a sign of laziness. Well, the people here, they've grown fat. Verse 15 of chapter 32. But Jeshurun, that is Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick. You are obese. They forgot him. They only cared about their bellies rather than God himself. And they only want God to give them good things. They will turn to other gods and they will serve them and they will provoke me. And again, they will break my covenant. And then it shall be when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify against them as a witness. For it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants, for I know their inclination, their behavior today, even before I brought them to the land which I swore to give them. Verse 21 is actually a kind of kindness from God, isn't it? He knows how terrible they are, and yet he's going to bring them into the land anyway. I know the old covenant is a temporal blessing. But he knows their inclinations. He knows their stiff-neckedness. He knows their wickedness. And yet, according to his promise to Abraham, he is going to fulfill that. Now, we know he's going to righteously deal with them for their violations of that covenant. But even before they go in, he knows what's going to happen. He knows they're going to forget. And so he gives this song, which the remnant would have clung to, the remnant would have held to, the remnant would have been fearful or shocked by and would have been changed by as God worked that way, but others will not be. He knows their inclination, and it shows that their wickedness is not outside the plan of God. The law does not change their hearts. God knows that, and that's one of its purposes. The law is to weigh people down to expose their hearts, to expose the wickedness of one's heart. That's why we preach the law. That's why we preach the Ten Commandments. That's why we preach uh, if, uh, sin is lawlessness, according to 1 John 3. That's why we need the law, certainly as a way to show someone their sinfulness, but also to show Christ, who keeps the law in its perfection. And so Yahweh knows this, yet Yahweh will still bring them in, according to his promise to Abraham, which you see in Joshua 21, 43, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise 
as the people enter into that land, but they're still going to, they're going to do terrible things still. And so the song will be a witness against them. And so verse 22, therefore Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. Then he inaugurated Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. Joshua needs strength as he fights. Joshua needs strength as he leads. And the book of Joshua is positive for the most part. But Joshua is going to have to lead a stiff-necked people <laughs> into the land. And again, Joshua, they're pretty good, but they still have their problems as a guy named Achan. That doesn't go so well. The whole Gibeonite or Gibeah, yeah, the Gibeonite treaty, that's not good. It's not a perfect book. There's still problems. There's the potential threat of the the altar. What does an altar alter uh, in, in Joshua 22? There's all those problems still there. And so Joshua needs help. Joshua needs encouragement. And because being a leader is lonely. Craigie says of the forms of loneliness that a man can experience, there are few so bleak as the loneliness of leadership. But Joshua assumed his lonely role with an assurance of companionship and strength. God's presence with him would be sufficient to enable him to meet boldly every obstacle the future could bring. And so Yahweh brings them into that land. Yahweh promises to be with Joshua as they enter into the land to dispossess it. Still, they're the same people who forget. And in verses 24 through 30, we see the same people who are stiff-necked. The law is going to also be witness against them. So Moses speaks to the leaders in verse 24. So it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, and when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that presence of Yahweh's sign of his presence, but also the place where the law would be, saying, take this book of the law and put it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that there it may be there as a witness against you. The book itself was going to be a witness. And the people themselves were not supposed to forget this book. We've seen many signs, right? The big mountains were going to be signs of blessings and curses. When they enter in, they have to, you know, whitewash and make sure they write the law so the people don't forget. They have a song. So they are, uh, that will be a witness against them. Heaven and earth are going to be a witness against them. And the book of the law is going to be a witness against them as well. And what happens in their history? They forget it. They don't read it. They don't listen to it. They don't understand it. This is seen in the reign of Jer uh, Josiah. Josiah finds the book of Deuteronomy. Where, where did this come from? It has been suppressed over years. Now, some modern commentators like to highlight, well, Deuteronomy wasn't written until that time. That's garbage. It was written at this time with Moses many years before Josiah. Because Deuteronomy is the foundation for the rest of the history of Israel. This is the foundation for all the indictments by the prophets. This is the foundation for all of Israel's failures. Israel was supposed to do it this said, yet they failed doing that very thing. Because they forgot it. They forgot Yahweh's goodness and they forgot Yahweh's law. And instead they went after other gods. And they have a plurality of witnesses to show how indisputable God's law is. God's clarity is when it comes to what they must do. So the ark will be a witness. The reason being, I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. 
I know what you are. I know what you've done. You've always been this way. If today, while I'm yet alive with you, Moses speaking, you have been rebellious against the Lord, how much more after my death? If they're rebellious under Moses, what's going to happen down the road when there's no Moses, right? It's the same people throughout the history of Israel. They've always rejected. They've always been stiff-necked. Now, stiff-necked certainly alludes back to Deuter- or Exodus 32 through 34 with that golden calf incident, that rebellious stiff-necked people. They've always been that way. And they're going to be stiff-necked all the way up until the time of our Lord Jesus, all the way up until the time of Stephen. What does Stephen say? What does he drive to before he's stoned to death? You've always been stiff-necked. The people were always wicked. The people were always terrible. The people always violated God's law. That's why we needed the true Israel, Jesus Christ, to come to die on behalf, to die, you know, be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. A new covenant has come in him. Why be under the old? It is no longer about ethnic descent, being an Israelite by blood, but be an Israelite through faith in Christ who shed his blood for his people. And perhaps there is an allusion in John 5, also under this theme of how Israel is always the same. In John 5, Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda. And the Pharisees, obviously, the Jews do not like that. They want to persecute him. They want to kill him because he violated, uh, did this on the Sabbath, healed the man on the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So then Jesus goes on this long diatribe against them. And one of the things he says in chapter 545, do not think that I shall accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Israel always remained this way. And perhaps under that second temple period, when Phariseeism and Sadduceeism and Essenism all emerged, they all believed Moses still was their mediator and their advocate. They believed Moses would be the one uh, 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 they, they viewed him in that sort of way. And so what Jesus is saying here, the one whom you trust is the one who witnesses against you. Because the one who witnesses against you is the one who wrote about me. And if they do not believe on Christ, it is an indictment against them with Moses as a witness. Moses prophesies about Christ to come. And the Pharisees don't believe upon him when he is there. But the point is, Israel was always rebellious. They are always the same stiff-necked people. Leaders are part of the problem as well. Verse 28 of Deuteronomy 31. Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that they may speak these words in their hearing, and call heaven and earth to witness against them. Three witnesses against them. For I know that after my death, you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the works of your 
hands. The Old Testament, Old Covenant is not going to change hearts. The New Covenant is what does that. And thankfully, we had Deuteronomy 30 with the promise of the circumcision that God will bring. The Old Covenant does not do that very thing. They will go, and they will be corrupted, and they will provoke the Lord to anger through the works of their hands, doing evil in his sight, doing wickedness uh, before him. And certainly a lot of the kings, most of, them, most of them are bad, do evil in the sight of the Lord and provoke him to anger. So leaders are going to be part of the problem. And certainly the people are going to be part of the problem as well. Verse 30, Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel, the words of this song until they were ended. And we'll save the song for next week. But I think there is an important reminder for the people of God who can be forgetful. There is unfortunately a problem of forgetfulness, even for the new covenant people. I know, and that's a great promise and a great reminder for us that we can never be forsaken, never fall away. But sometimes in our Christian walk with remaining corruption, we're just forgetful, right? And certainly for the old covenant, there were catastrophic ramifications for their forgetfulness. But I think in the new covenant, a lot of the language, similar to uh, what we see here, but a lot of the language in the new covenants about Perhaps for you know, having the lampstands taken away, uh, he has ears to hear, let him hear, even the parable of the sower. It really is to awaken sometimes our apathy or our slumber, right? Sometimes we can grow spiritually slumber. We can be sleepy. We can have some apathy. And certainly corporately, uh, churches of God have grown forgetful of what church, uh, what. Uh, they must do. That was a problem in Revelation 2. In Revelation 2, certainly there's the promise in Revelation 1 that Christ is with his church who walks among the lampstands. But sometimes there can be churches that lose their lampstands because they stop preaching their first love, namely Christ. And so a lot of these signs that come upon, like signs like we see in Revelation, Signs like we see with the parables, signs under the old covenant too. When there were visions, it was kind of to shock people, right? Well, there's a vision. Well, that's terrifying. I need to stop and ponder and think for a second. I need to be awoken from my slumber. You know, a lot of times if God, if we neglect something, sometimes God takes that away. Oh, we, that was a good thing in life. Like worship was for two years. I mean, worship's a good thing. Oh, you don't want to. You know, you want to do this on Sunday. You want to do that on Sunday. You'd rather do this than church. Okay, I'll take that away for two years. And let's see what happens. Sometimes God does that to awaken us out of our slumbers. And thankfully for a lot of people, God did do that very thing. But this was to the church at Ephesus, that loveless church. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, he walks in the midst of the golden sense. He is with his church. And sometimes him being with his church is to awaken his church by saying hard things. He says, you have persevered. There's been patience. Very good. But you have this one thing against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove lampstand from its place. You know, we ought not to be fearful of that language as reformed folk. We believe God saves his elect. We believe God works in his elect. 
But we also believe God sometimes uses language like this to awaken and shake his elect to cause us to think. But this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So uh, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him overcomes to eat from the tree of life. Uh, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Sometimes we need those signs. Gill says, for the love of the saints to God and Christ and one another, which appeared at beginning, the beginning of this church state, when they were all of one heart and one soul, as generally at first conversion, love is the warmest. You ever feel like that? You got converted, you're feeling good and on fire and everything's good. And then later on in life, you're like, I just feel dull and dead. I believe the promises are true, but I don't feel as on fire as I once was. Maybe that's why we want to, sometimes people feel like when they get converted and people see that fire and conversion, let's just have them serve and do all this. Okay, but it's probably not good for them. They should probably just sit and listen and be patient. But anyway, he goes on to say, so it was at the first planting of gospel churches, therefore here called first love. Now this, though it was not lost, for the true grace of love can never be lost. Yet it was left and it abated in its heat and fervor. There was a remissness in the exercise of it. Brethren, we can never be snatched from the hand of our Christ. We grow in him, but sometimes... Our fervor is a little weak, isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes our fire is a little low. Sometimes our desires are a little wayward. And sometimes we need God's goodness to remind us of that very thing. We need God to remind us of that very thing in his word, which he does, doesn't he? He reminds us. He awakens us. He shakes us out of our slumber. I do think this is also what's going on in Mark or with the parables, he does say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see, that typically isn't a sign of judgment. Pay attention. He has ears to hear, let him hear. There's four seeds, right? Only one is true. There might be some who look like believers, what a confession calls temporary believers, not as though they actually believed or actually were saved or were actually in Christ, but for all appearances, they looked like it. They liked the feeling. They liked the fellowship. They liked the, the camaraderie. They liked those things rather than laying hold of Christ himself. And Christ, anyone who's not in Christ will be cut off. Anyone who's not laid hold of Christ will be cut off. But all those who are in him shall remain forever. And so it's those who are planted in the good soil, those who believe, and certainly the, the image of the, of the scattering of the seeds is the gospel being spread, the gospel being proclaimed, the kingdom of God is advancing. Some, it never, uh, it, it just, it scatters along the path and the birds take it. Some, it's just a little, it's in shallow root and it only, it grows initially, but then it withers when the sun comes out and others, it grows, it's sown among the thorns and it's choked out by the difficulties of the world but those who are christ christ shall preserve until the end and ought to be an encouragement brethren when we're forgetful if you're forgetful there is a god who said i will never leave you nor forsake you and this is the encouragement of first john the whole book if anybody sins don't sin but if anybody sins we have an advocate with the father 
Jesus Christ the righteous. That is a comfort for us, brethren. And even before then, he says, if anybody says he does not sin, he's a liar. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Why? Because of his finished work as the propitiation for our sins, as one who prays for us now. Think about that. If Christ died for his people, will he not pray for them as that high priest? Will he not intercede for them based upon his finished work? Does he not intercede for you now? That's the comfort of Christ, our advocate. You sin and you're worried that you're, you're going to follow. You can never fall away because you are in Christ as our righteousness and as our advocate who strongly pleads for us based on his wounds that strongly plead for me. And first John was all about that assurance given to souls who were concerned. That assurance given to those who perhaps need a little bit of shaking as well. God is with his people, even when we're forgetful of those promises. And brethren, just as he has begun a good work in you, he will complete it. Philippians chapter 1. That is the promise of the new covenant. An important question to ask ourselves, do we believe it? And do we pray it back to the same God who never forsakes his chosen people? Let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, thank you for that promise that you have said you will never leave us nor forsake us. And thank you, O God, that this is a promise given to us, not because of anything special about us or anything good within us, but because you are gracious and because of your eternal plan, because of your mercy. And thank you, O God, that this is because of Christ and his finished work and our being found in him and of that new covenant that was given for us by the shedding of his blood. Thank you, O God, that we know you. Thank you, O God, that our sins are forgiven in him. And thank you, O God, that we have, uh, he has taken the requirements of the law and he has nailed it to the cross. He has triumphed uh, overall and that we might have life in him. And so we pray, O God, today, we ask that you help us not to be forgetful. Please forgive us for our forgetfulness. Please forgive us for our apathy. Please forgive us for our coldness. Please forgive us uh, for unstirred hearts to, the, your, your, uh, uh, to your truth and to your goodness, to do what is right for you. Help us to have zeal, O oh God, and may we stir ourselves up by your word, and by your promises. And may we cling to that promise that you are always with us. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your love. May we not fear what man uh, shall do to us, for you promise to never leave us nor forsake us. So may this give us comfort as we go engage in our tasks tomorrow. And we pray, oh God, you give us good night's rest to do that. And we pray your name would be glorified in the name of Christ. Amen.